Hey there, it's Kimberly. We're revisiting some of our top episodes of the year, and one of my personal favorites is about the origins of everyday foods and their place in the American economy. Now, it's because of you that we get to deep dive every week into all kinds of topics about business, the economy, and culture. We really couldn't do this work without you. So before we get to the show, we want to thank you for listening to Make Me Smart. And if you're in a position to do so, please consider making a tax-deductible year-end donation today. You can do so at marketplace.org slash givesmart. We'd really appreciate it, and thank you. Oh, I guess Jake's just going to do it. That's fine. That's fine. He's ready. Whatever. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us on this Tuesday for our weekly deep dive. Regular listeners often hear me and Kai say how much we love history and how cool it is. Um, and so today we are going to do something super cool and get a little history lesson. Um, but it's all going to be through the lens of food. Jello and chicken nuggets and green bean, past, green bean casserole, all that good stuff. It's all about food and history. It's actually a really cool thing because it combines two of my favorite things. Uh, food historian <laughs> Anazeda is with us. She's the author of the new book. It's called U.S. History in 15 Foods. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So look, why food? I mean, I'm all over it, but why? <laughs> <laughs> I think food has this really interesting um, position where it's both like really, really important, right? We all have to eat every day. Nothing else that we do can really happen without food. And yet at the same time, I think because of how you know mundane it becomes almost in its dailiness, it recedes to the back of our kind of concentrated thought. And we don't spend all that much time thinking about how central it is, both, you know, to our daily lives as well as to historical events. You know, it's so interesting because so much of any individual culture is wrapped up in food. And America, which is so multicultural, has so many different, I guess, like food pathways coming together. So how did you then pick just 15 of them, <laughs> and then ones that can actually represent, air quote, American culture. Yeah, that was certainly a challenge. And I, I would say sort of choosing the 15 and putting together the initial table of contents took almost as much time as like writing the whole book did, because <laughs> it required so much digging through all of these different stories to think about how these foods might tell us specific stories about, you know, well-known events in the past. And as I open the book, I sort of say, you know, it certainly could be 15 other foods or probably 100 other foods that readers could come up with that could serve as different kinds of lenses. And so these aren't definitive. And yet I think each one really opens up a window onto a particular era in American history and lets us reimagine how we might understand it through both food in general and then the particular food that anchors each chapter. So let's walk through uh, a couple of those. I want to start with the Whiskey Rebellion. It's it's a tax uh-huh. policy story. It's a we-need-whiskey story. Give us, give us that <laughs> one, could you? Yeah, I really like this one in part because it retells a story that most of us, if we took a high school U.S. history or college U.S. history class, at some point we might have heard of the Whiskey Rebellion, and it's often framed as kind of being this first major kind of conflict between federal authority and local rebellion. And George Washington steps in and he's able to kind of put the rebellion down and the tax continues. Um, And basically it's, you know, soon after the American Revolution, new country still figuring out how to 
assert its authority. The idea is that they, you know, Congress puts a tax, levies a tax on whiskey and these kind of frontiersmen who I think in the classic telling often are, you know, kind of backwoods people who are so attached to their drink that they can't have the tax. Um, and I try to retell the story to kind of reframe what whiskey was, not just a drink to, you know, to get drunk on, but a drink that really represented connections to the land, an ability to convert um, the land into a commodity that could be easily shipped to cities, a frontier identity that was mm. sort of really at the heart of the new nation. Um, you know, I talk about how before the American Revolution, there was kind of a, a decided shift away from rum, which had been the drink of choice, but relies on sugar imported from mm -hmm. the British West Indies to whiskey, which was a kind of uniquely American, or not uniquely, but could be made from American products, mm -hmm. corn and grain that could be grown here on American soil. And so as the revolution approaches, whiskey comes to embody that kind of American independence that the whole revolution, you know, then carried the spirit of forward. Well, while we're talking about American wars and, and food and identity, chapter five, pot liquor, or, or I guess item number five, pot liquor, food and slavery in the antebellum South. First of all, very interested in your spelling of pot liquor, which uh -huh. <laughs> um, for people who might not know is a reference to sort of the um, fluid left behind after cooking a lot of sort of soul foods. And I'm particularly thinking of collard greens um, mm -hmm. and this sort of... Um, broth that's left behind, which is referred to as pot liquor, which has, I guess, a couple of different spellings. Can you talk about sort of this moment in American history and the role that food played in it? Right, yeah. And so food is so so central to the period of enslavement. Both, um, I talk about pot liquor as kind of being envisioned by enslavers as a waste product. So they'd fish out the greens and the piece of meat that was cooked with it and eat that and then pour the remaining broth over the corn mush that was fed to enslaved people. And it was kind of, you know, seen as a waste product. And yet, even before kind of modern uh, vitamin and nutrition knowledge was known, it turns out when you cook greens for a really long time, most of the nutrients leach into the broth. And, um, mm. you know, sort of through folk wisdom, enslaved people knew that it was a healthy substance and were really grateful for it. Um, and so I use it to sort of talk about how it's food in enslavement is both used as a tool of power to that the enslavers wielded hunger by giving these sort of waste products as they saw them to enslaved people. And at the same time, food was also a way that a lot of enslaved peoples reclaimed power, took agency for themselves, whether that was through growing small garden truck patches um, just outside their quarters when possible, often after sunset, after they'd worked, you know, long grueling hours in the fields or being able to forage or hunt or fish when possible in the nearby woods. And so these kind of connections to food and often, you know, foods that came from African ancestors and had been handed down was a way that people in their daily lives who were, you know, mm. dramatically disempowered were able to pull, pull some pleasure sometimes out, out of food. Can you talk for a minute about food and and um, marketing? The the example you choose, of course, is is Campbell's Soup and and you know the the sort of iconography of that company and what it came to mean. But food and marketing, even you know today, when we're probably more sophisticated consumers, one would hope. Um, st st one would hope. Uh, still, sort of, it. I mean, there's a lot of oomph that food marketing carries. 
Yeah. Right. And so, you know, one a big, big theme throughout this book and other work I've done is that a lot of foods when they emerge are not obvious cells. You know, it's not obvious that someone would want to eat jello, this fruit cold dessert made from animal gelatin, you know, like these are not uh, <laughs> taken for granted <laughs> desirable things. And often people are pretty, uh, you know, they, they eat what they're familiar with and what they've been used to. And so introducing new foods is really uh, very quickly takes companies into the space of having to build a market where marketing comes into play really strongly, um, such that, you know, f- major food companies that we still know today, many of them were leading advertisers in the early 20th century. And that kind of appeal to all kinds of different authority and stamps of approval to get people to want to try this thing and, and, and incorporate it into their daily diets. It's, a, it's, you know, often requires some real work. And, you know, there's history is littered with lots of failed <laughs> products that didn't quite make it. And, um, you know, I think that that uh, my first book is about canned food, and it's all about how you know canned food. What acceptance of canned food was what sort of paved the way for Americans to trust all kinds of processed foods. Sort of trusting something in an opaque package where you couldn't see what was inside, and you only had to go mm-hmm. you know on the word mm-hmm. of the of the corporation. Hmm. You know that Jello and and some of those other processed foods really talk about sort of food and technology, which you get into mm-hmm. in this book. But also you talk about food and global power uh, with mm-hmm. the example of spam. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So this one is um, partly a personal story, too, in the sense that I, I grew up hearing my dad, who was born in, in Russia in the former Soviet Union in 1937, talking about how as a kid, the, sol- the American soldiers who were stationed nearby would hand out cans of Spam that were left over from their rations to nearby children, and how he, he would taste this meat, and it was just the most delicious thing he had ever tasted, salty and fatty. And he was also a vegetarian for my most of my life mm. as, as an adult. And so hearing oh, I found him out sort what of... was in Spam. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. Except, no offense you know, I to think Spam, I the, love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it even then gave me a sense of the context of sort of why something like this would be so delicious that hunger and lack of access to sort of high protein meat sources was such, you know, was such a lack in that wartime period. And it carried with it this kind of appeal of the American soldier and the power and sense of democratic promise that they held. And um, so that that fascinated me as a child. And so as I came to think more about World War II and the food that I wanted to write, Spam rose quickly to the forefront, in particular because of that image of the American soldier mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, as I did the research, it became clear that that was true, not just in, in the Soviet Union, but really all over the world, such that Amer- everywhere the American soldier went throughout Europe and Asia and the Pacific theater, um, spam and other American foods really went with them. And, you know, today spam is still widely popular in Hawaii and Guam mm. and throughout the kind of Pacific islands in large part because of this World War II um, planting. What do we get wrong about food in our culture? <laughs> oh, wow. That is a big question. <laughs> Take your time. Um, yeah. I mean, I think... There are a lot of things. Um, one of them is that we don't spend that much time thinking about it. Um, and I think this extends both to thinking about the incredible complexity of you know environmental ramifications and technology and labor that goes into producing our 
incredibly plentiful, abundant, cheap, and diverse and largely delicious food supply that the U.S. most people have access to, even even people who you know have less money relative to any other time in American history have more uh, can eat like kings, so to yeah. speak. And I think the fact that we take that for granted, um, both in that broad scope as well as kind of day to day, the way that we don't always allow food to be a source of pleasure or community or rest, um, that we eat on the go, that we cram an energy bar in where we can, that we don't linger over meals, don't let food be that point of connection on a tip, you know, on a daily basis, certainly for holidays or special occasions, we do still usually return to the table and see the way that it builds community. Mm. But I think that pushing it to the back of our minds um, and to the back of our days really comes at the huge cost of, of our, you know, of our health, of the health of the planet and, and our relationship to the pleasure of food. Last one, and then we'll let you go. Uh, what was number 16? Which one didn't, which, what was the last one not to make the cut? Yeah, the, you know, uh, even figuring out what to write for 15, how to write a, um, a chapter about kind of the present, about yeah. my own life, felt really challenging. And, and as I thought about what would be the next chapter, you know, as we move forward and certainly in our current moment. I do think um, debates and conversations around alternative proteins are uh, yeah, yeah, really yeah, at the forefront yeah. and will continue to be as we reckon with the real unsustainability of our meat production system in an era of climate crisis. And thinking about what all of these, you know, cell cultured meats as well as just yeah. more standard meat substitutes, edible insects, this whole array of um, alternative proteins that really get into questions about how we make our food and how sustainable or unsustainable that system really is. Well, since you brought it up, tell us about number 15, not to give away everything in the book, but, you know, how you wrapped up what food means for you. 15 is Korean tacos. And I really came to this after trying, you know, as I was writing this book in the pandemic, in the, you know, post-2020 election and thinking about all of the major sources that, that were shaking up the world I was living in. And even as someone who studies the past and has seen a lot of um, tremendous change and upheaval, still trying to make sense of the upheaval in our own time, um, two bit major sources that seem to come come out um, were questions around immigration and how this country that is so founded on immigrants wrestles with and reckons with very competing feelings about how what role immigrants play in our society. And then the question of social media and technology and what it's doing to our foundations, our, democrat, our democratic impulses, understanding what this really dramatically um, new and t- tremendously impactful technology is doing to all of us. Um, and so in that space, Korean tacos really emerged to try to help me think about both of those issues, both as sort of a fusion food that brought together the Korean and Mexican populations of Los Angeles, where it was first kind of came to, to power with Kogi in the, in the food truck mm-hmm. scene in around 2008. Um, and that same time, Kogi was using Twitter, the very new medium, to spread uh, news about its location each day. And at the same time, spread this kind of or promoted this foodie revolution around food trucks and gourmet food trucks. Um, And those same forces of social media and immigrant strengths that produce this food 
also led, you know, first to kind of the rise of Obama and his immigrant backgrounds, as well as his use of social media and his campaigns. And then we're really central in the rise of Trump and sort of anti-immigrant backlash and the rhetoric that he used and uh, his use of social media, obviously, to to develop a certain kind of platform. So all of these forces are thinking about how this particular food and these particular political moments come together to shape the, the, the moment that we're in. Wow. Ana Zeta <laughs> is the author of the new book, U.S. History and 15 Foods, also a food historian. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ana. Thank you for having me. This was great. Yeah. I Wow. Mind blown. Yeah. Food in politics yeah. and history and technology and superpowerness. Wow. Good for her. That was cool. That was that was very cool. Uh, let us know what you think, would you? Uh, 508-827-6278. Uh, 508-UB-SMART. Those are all letters in a little shout out to Amy Scott. Um, email <laughs> us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We are coming right back. All right, news. Let's go. Yes. Um, so my first one is actually an obituary or, or several obituaries that um, somebody on Twitter, which I still look at, flagged for me. <laughs> Judy Human, uh, who is a who was a disability rights activist who passed last week at seventy five. And she, I'm going to read from PBS NewsHour's obituary, she lost her ability to walk at the age of two after contracting polio and lobbied for legislation that led to the passage of the landmark Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, She was a teacher, an activist, and basically pushed to make sure that we were more inclusive in our society of people with all kinds of abilities and disabilities, and especially uh, Section 504, which says you can't discriminate against someone who has a disability if the entity is receiving money from the federal government. And that was a really key part of this that um, she was pivotal in and just wanted to mark that moment. Mm-hmm. And her contributions. And thank you to Michelle on Twitter who flagged that for me. And then we talked the other day about um, Walgreens and how Walgreens came out and said that they were not going to be distributing abortion pills in certain parts of the country. And woo boy, are they getting it? <laughs> um, They have obviously faced a huge backlash across the country with this, especially since other pharmacy chains aren't saying anything. So it's pretty much just Walgreens out there by itself getting celebrated at CPAC, which depending on, you know, where you are in the country or in the political spectrum may not be exactly where you want to be promoted at a given point in time. And now the story that made me want to talk about this today, California's governor has said they will not do business. California will not do business with Walgreen Boots Alliance, Inc. uh, because of this. The state refused. This is from Reuters. The state refuses to do business with Walgreens or any company, quote, that cowers to the extremists and puts women's lives at risk, said Newsom. 
And so that means all the relationships between Walgreens and the state were now under review, although we're not exactly sure how that might mean business might change. But this is only going to get worse because, you know, I think some of these corporations really hoped that they could just stay out of politics for a while and they are not going to be able to do it. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. And and Walgreens is out there all by its lonesome as everybody just watches to see what happens. Yes. Really interesting. Yes. Really interesting. Uh, okay, so this will be day two in a row for me of dumping on the New York Times and Jim Tankersley in particular, and I'm a big fan of his, so I hate to do this. But another story in the New York Times today about which I can only say, duh. Jim wrote a piece today about uh, a debt default and what that would mean for the American economy based on a study by Mark Zandi from uh, Moody's. Moody's. And uh, Mark Zandi said that it would be catastrophic for the American economy. Yes. Yes. Next question. I I don't know. I just, it kills me that, I I mean, I guess, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All this stuff that seems so obvious to me and and just is not... I don't even know. I'm just irritated by the fact that we have to keep saying this. We have to keep saying that Republicans voted to increase uh, the amount that we borrow, as did Democrats, and that a debt default would be catastrophic. I just, uh, okay, I'll keep saying it. I'll keep saying it. I mean, the thing is, people know it. I know. I know. It it doesn't necessarily push people towards action. Yeah. Or I think some some of the folks in Congress legitimately want to see the crisis. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Um, that's right. And, well, and, and, who well, sorry, it? Was wait, it sorry. Let me just who said never sorry. waste a crisis. N- never let a good crisis go to waste. Let me just yes, be, I, I need to be super clear here. It's not some folks in Congress. It's Republicans in the House of Representatives. Right. Yes, I mean, we have yes, to say that. Yes. And and before yes, you at true. me with and by you, I mean, anybody listening or anybody who happens to see this go by in a tweet or something. Uh, don't at me on this one because it's not the Democrats. It's not this Democrats in the Senate. It's not Republicans in the Senate. It's Republicans mm-hmm. in the House of Representatives. And we have to be able to yes, say that without true. being accused of, of politicizing or whatever. That's just that's the fact. It is accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, OK. Item number two and, and uh, of more substance, probably long term, is a piece I saw in Bloomberg today about uh, female executives leaving this economy. So we talked a lot during the pan- during the early stages of the pandemic in 2020 and, and late 2020 and early 2021 about women in large numbers leaving the workforce because of child care, uh, parental care, and other domestic duties that typically fall disproportionately on women and men typically not doing them. And we talked a lot about that. Now, women, generally speaking, have come back to the labor force as the economy, as the pandemic has waned. But what Bloomberg points out, and it cites several uh, items of research on this, is that female executives uh, are basically leaving and saying, screw it. We are not interested in doing this. We don't want to tolerate companies, the paper, the the piece points out, that don't support them in their roles as mothers and other mm-hmm. uh, things that they do outside of work, which contributes so essentially to um, the way the society functions, but which for which they are not given due space in their professional lives. Um, and it's a really important article. We will put it on our show page. But the idea that we are now past the era when women in the workforce is a crisis as it was early in this pandemic is just not correct. And it's going to be. A really I mean, and look problem. at the list in this yeah. in this yeah. uh, article of some of the people who they highlight, uh, you know, the list of high level resignations includes YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, mm-hmm. uh, one of Silicon Valley's most prominent yeah. female yeah. leaders who also helped create Google's advertising business. Amy Hawk, the brand CEO at Victoria's Secret. Um 
New Zealand's prime minister. Yep, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Jacinda Ardern. Absolutely. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's uh-huh. first minister. Um, and all of them citing burnout or wanting to spend more time with their families. And, you know, I've I've seen this happening in my own community of women I know, friends and family who either dialed back their hours during the pandemic or had to because of, you know, all the reasons that we've talked about, or they just decided, you know, they got to start spending more time with their kids and they're like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm going to be with my family, you know, while the kids are still at the age where it matters and it's just not worth it anymore. And if the job's not supporting me, I'll just do a different job or do something else. Now, that's a point of privilege to be able to do that. Um, But I guess that's why it's executives who are making Mm -hmm. these choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Uh, Yeah, that's it. So mailbag. Let's move on to that. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, so I was talking the other day about uh, Wordle and and <laughs> how I was so smart because I muted Wordle in my tweet deck and then I didn't have to see it anymore except for... Nova freaking Safo, whose Wordle score <laughs> keeps coming up on my Twitter feed. I should say here, I love Nova. He's a great reporter and he's a signature voice for us here at Marketplace, but I don't need to know his Wordle score. Anyway, then we got this. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Christian Seeley. Please tell me I am not the only one. When I hear someone on Marketplace say Nova Safo's name that sings a song Bodhisattva by Steely Dan <laughs> and uses Nova's name in the mm. lyrics instead, you know, singing Nova Safo. Would you take me by the hand? Nova Safo, would you take me by the hand? Can you show me the shine of your Japan? The sparkle of your China? Can you show me Nova Safo? Nova Safo? Well, anyway, I hope it made you smile. This one always makes me smile. Thanks, guys. We we, we should mute my track under that because I was laughing so much. That's great, actually. That's great. That did make me smile, although I don't know the song. I'll have to go in. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. I don't know the song. You would know it as soon as you heard it, I think. I think. Maybe you're a little young for I that? think you, you overestimate my Steely Dan uh, knowledge. All right. Um, okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. But there's something similar, and he'll probably hate me for saying this out loud, but um, every time I have to write an email to Justin Ho, yeah. like, I end up, you know, because we have a pretty standard way we write emails here at Marketplace, I always think of the song um, Jai Ho from Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, Yeah. But wait, what's the standard? What wait? What's the standard form for emails here at Marketplace? Because I'm sure I'm 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 completely sure I'm breaking protocol every time I write an email. No, I'm talking about in our email addresses. Oh, which, oh yeah, you know. oh yeah, 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 for sure, <laughs> so, for sure. Because yeah. the song is called Jai Ho, and you know, yep. J Ho. There we anyway. go. <laughs> so there we like, go. Yeah, every single time I'm like, mm-hmm. that's funny. <laughs> Anyway, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Hi, this is Eric from Northern California. I always thought that dancing was this thing that you kind of had to learn because I was always a terrible dancer, even though I'm a musician, now a music teacher. Right now, I have a one-year-old. And um, when we first put on music, they just started moving around 
and watching my little son wiggle his arms around and, and kind of <laughs> invent new dance moves uh, really changed my perspective on inherent art found within humans. So uh, I now have no excuse to uh, stand on the side of the dance floor at weddings anymore. Oh, man. I think we all naturally dance, and we are taught to be ashamed of our dancing. Oh, yeah. And it has stuck with me, let me tell you. I'm staying firmly on the side of the dance floor next wedding. Aww. Oh, yeah. No. Come on. Yeah, have I you even met me? Cut I... it out. Come on. No, I remember when I tried to get you to do that TikTok dance, and yeah, no. you did not do it. Nope. 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 All right. Uh, anyway, what is something you thought you knew, later found out you were wrong about? That is the Make Me Smart question. Leave us a voice message with your answer. To that question, our number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras, and today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry with mixing by Drew Jostad. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on-demand. Marketplace's vice president and general manager. And Grand Poobah is Neil Scarborough. But you danced at your wedding, right? Yeah, I had to. I had to. Did you, did you do a good job? I guess. I mean, look, I'm still married, right? Yeah, I suppose you didn't do too badly. <laughs>